0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 is where we find ourselves. We're working our way through John. We're going to finish it up here in the next few weeks. And we're at this beautiful account of the empty tomb. As you're finding John chapter 20, let me just mention what a joy it is to have the Kajubis with us. We have been a church for 17 and a half years. We started in April of 2005. And of all the earthly blessings that the Lord has given Cross Point, our partnership with the Kajubis and King Jesus Church is at the very top of that list praise God for his grace to us through you. I can't imagine any place you'd rather be than here on Wednesday night. And now, registration for food may have been closed, but I hear Chick-fil-A's open on Wednesdays. (laughs) And I can't imagine any place you'd rather be than here next Sunday morning to hear this dear brother open God's word for us. Uh, Praise God we Love you guys, and we're so thankful that you're here, and we might just keep you here for a little longer. Who knows? Well, let's, uh, let's think about this text this morning. Uh, I'm going to read the first 10 verses of John chapter 20. We, for about the past two years almost, have been working through this glorious gospel, and we're coming to 10 verses here in the beginning of John 20 that describe the first account of the empty tomb, and the implication of the resurrection of Jesus. Almost 30 years ago, I was stationed here as a young lieutenant at Fort Benning, going through infantry training. Before that, I had done sort of the equivalent of basic training at the United States Military Academy, and one of the first things that they show you how to do when you enter into our army is to assemble and disassemble your rifle. At that time, it was an M16, and now I think it's an M4 but there is a little pin. We used to call it a cotter pin. I think it's called the retaining pin. And there's a little pin that holds together the bolt, the the mechanism of a rifle that actually makes it fire. And it's a tiny tiny little piece of metal that if it is not inserted properly, the weapon will not reassemble. It won't function at all. You have this big rifle that won't work at all if this little pin is out of place. You lose everything if you lose that cotter pin. And that's the way this truth, this passage functions for the Bible. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is by no means a little thing, but it is an absolute essential thing. If you take away the resurrection, if you take away what we're going to look at this morning, you lose all of the Bible, you lose all of Christianity, you lose all of the hope of the gospel. And so I want us to think about the resurrection this morning. To do that, I'm going to read the first 10 verses. We're going to look at what this text says very briefly. Then I want to ask and answer two questions. Why is the resurrection so important? And what impact should that have on how we live our daily lives? And then we're going to see two two folks from our church baptized and declare this very gospel that we will think about this morning. Let me read the text. John chapter 20, verse 1. This is after Jesus has been crucified. He has been put in the tomb. Verse 1 of John 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's John. He always refers to himself in the third person in this gospel. That's John, the gospel writer. And said to them, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Let me pray one more time for the Lord to help us think rightly about this passage. Lord, help me as I As I communicate what I think are important truths from this passage, help my brothers and sisters be transformed more into the image of Christ because of our time in this Word. Thank you for friends that are gathering that may not know you. I pray, as we've already prayed, that you would give them a heart to believe, eyes to see, ears to hear the gospel. Thank you for the Kajubis. Thank you for King Jesus Church. Give us attention now to your Word. Help us by your Holy Spirit. To do what only you can do. Be glorified. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, I want you to see a couple things in this text before we work through these two questions. I want you to see embedded in this text some evidences for the reliability of the gospel itself and of the resurrection accounts. So now it's important, I think, I think evidences that point us to the reliability of Scripture. And the reliability of the resurrection account are important, but they are not final. They're not the the thing that we're hanging. Uh, Apologetics and and, um, answers to good questions are very, very important. And we should be well versed in them. We should have good arguments for what the scripture says and how it points us to a rational faith in Christ In fact, the the scriptures say that. Peter says that we should always be ready to have an answer for the hope that is in us. But at the end of the day, I think we need to remember that believing, that trusting in Christ is something, it's a gift that God must give us. In fact, earlier on in John, in John chapter 6, we read where Jesus walks on water Actually, before that, he feeds the multitudes. He produces fish and bread out of nothing. And then he follows that up by walking on the water. And then he preaches a hard sermon and the vast majority of the crowd walks away. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has resurrected from the dead and is about to ascend to heaven. And it still says that some of his disciples doubted him. The point is, is although we could spend a lot of time, and it would be valuable time, thinking about the apologetic evidences that are embedded in all four of the gospel accounts for the life and ministry of Jesus, and specifically for the resurrection, ultimately, even though those are good things, and God may use those arguments to bring about faith in a person, ultimately we're relying on God to speak light into a dark heart. So let's not lose lose sight of that. But I do want us to see some evidences here of the reliability of the gospel account of the resurrection, that if, which has been the charge through the centuries, that if you were making up this gospel account to kind of promulgate a new religion, that you would never write it this way that John and the other gospels have written. The first would be that the first witness to the empty tomb and in other gospels to the resurrected Jesus is a woman which doesn't shock our modern ears, but in first century culture, a woman's account of some sort of event would not have held up in any court of law. It's not, Mary Magdalene is not who you would want to make a first witness. And if you were writing a kind of manifesto about this Jewish leader that you wanted to be the one that uh, conquers the, the, the Roman Empire, you wouldn't include personal details like John. In fact, it's kind of funny. Did you notice there where John is the one that's writing this, and he just sort of slips in? You know, him and Peter were real close, but like any two guys that are real close, close maybe there's a little competitiveness, and he just happens to mention twice within the space of 10 verses that he outran Peter. <laughs> it's classic. I'm faster than you. I can do more push-ups than you. My dad is bigger than your dad. You know, that kind of kind of talk. And yet, that's in there, not because it's necessarily moving the story forward or it's a, it's a point that you would include in some sort of made-up manifesto, but because it actually happened. And it's something that's on the mind of the human writer that the Holy Spirit has inspired. And then secondly, or thirdly, you can think of the, the linen cloths, which is a striking scene. Why, why in verse 5? Does John just happen to mention that the linen cloths were lying there? And then in verse 7, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Again, this is a a kind of small historical fact that points us to the miraculous nature of the resurrection. You you know, if you think about Lazarus' resurrection in John chapter 11, Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus and he says, Lazarus, get up and Lazarus wakes up. That's a picture of salvation. Jesus speaks the words of life. He gives Lazarus a new heart. Lazarus is enabled. He responds. He gets up, and then the tomb is rolled away, and Lazarus walks out, but he still is covered with the linen cloths, and Jesus says to the crowd around him, unwrap him. Well, what's going on in the tomb? We don't have any detail. It's only speculation at this point, but is Jesus's resurrected glorious body? Does Jesus unwrap himself and fold them up like it accounts here in the story, or does Jesus just sort of somehow gloriously, uh, spiritually, uh, miraculously just sort of float out of his clothes into a, a, a resurrected body? We, we don't know, but the neatness of the way that the linen cloths are there and mentioned is a kind of evidence of the resurrection, and it's an evidence that one of the things that the Jewish leaders were worried about didn't happen. If we were to take the time to go to Matthew chapter 27 and Matthew's account of the resurrection of Jesus, one of the things that the chief priests were worried about was that Jesus' followers were going to come at night and they were going to try and steal his body because they were somewhat aware of these statements of Jesus earlier on in his life about his resurrection. And so they had this on the back of their mind that something maybe might be, it's almost like they're kind of uh, believing the possibility of Jesus's resurrection, even in their unbelief. And so they go to the, to the Roman soldiers and they, they put a guard on the, the, the tomb. And then when they find out that Jesus's body isn't there, they actually say, well, we got to come up with something. So they say, hey, we're going to pay you guys, these Roman soldiers, so that you just say that you fell asleep and that they stole the body. But if you're stealing a body that is still decomposing, why would you take off the linen cloths that would help to obscure or minimize the stench of a decomposing body? You wouldn't do it. And so just this subtle little fact... That these linen cloths are still there is a kind of evidence to the reliability, the historical reliability of the account of John. And one more final thing before we get into these two questions. The fact that Matthew writes in... His account in Matthew chapter 27, that these Jewish leaders were somewhat aware of the possibility of the resurrection. And therefore, they paid off these Roman guards to come up with the story when they see the empty tombs. And then the fact that John and Peter, according to verse 9, it says that although John believed in some sense in verse 8, but it says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead... The fact that John writes in his and Peter's lack of full understanding at this point, knowing that Matthew in his gospel account has written in the possibility that the religious leaders were somewhat aware of the possibility. I mean, if you're going to start a manifesto, if you're going to start a revolution, if you're going to come up with a story, you don't write about how your enemies are more cued into your plot than you are. Do you get that point? And so all of, this, all of this combined together gives us evidence that Jesus was dead. And note that there's really no detail. We don't really have any detail about how the resurrection happened. Why is this? Why don't we get a peek inside the tomb when the resurrection, when the cells of our incarnate Lord we're coming back to life why don't we get any detail I think because God does not intend for us to know the details of how it happened but that it happened that's the important part and so we have Jesus who is risen Jesus has risen from the grave and we're gonna read in subsequent weeks about his interactions before he is ascended. But let me, give, let me answer two questions here. First, why is the resurrection so important? Why is this the retaining pin of the whole Christian gospel? Why is this the pin that holds the whole Bible together? Well, I have three reasons why this is, and we could focus on many more, but I have three reasons why this resurrection is so important for our understanding of the gospel. The first is that it is the basis for our regeneration, for our regeneration. What do we mean by regeneration? If that's an unfamiliar word to you, it's a biblical word. I think it's only used maybe once in Titus chapter 3, but it's a synonym for phrases like being born again or being saved or being made alive that we see in the Bible. It means literally the remaking of The remaking, regenerate. To generate something means to make it. Genesis, the beginning, generate. And to regenerate is to make something alive. It is ultimately the very crux of salvation. So when we talk about regeneration, we're talking about being born again. It's the primary work of salvation, it's what God does when he saves a person, and implied in this understanding of regeneration, this this doctrinal word, and I want you to understand this. Don't be intimidated by this word. You can understand this. Implied in this word regeneration is this idea that something needs to be regenerated. Something needs to be brought back to life, which is the human heart, which is our soul. We are dead in our sin by nature. That's the clear witness of the Bible. We've over the years read many scriptures we've pointed to this fact often the bible says in ephesians chapter 2 and colossians chapter 2 and numerous other places romans chapter 5 that the effect of sin in the lives of all of humanity is that it hasn't just neutralized us but it has killed us spiritually we are dead in our sins and i want you to see here i'm going to read a bunch of scriptures here quickly to show us how the resurrection is the thing that secures, that brings about our regeneration, our being brought back to life. How so? Let me read some scriptures quickly. You may not want to flip to these. Just buckle up, write them down, and dwell on them later. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, listen to this logic, He has caused us To be born again to a living hope, how? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the resurrection, this empty tomb, Jesus coming back to life is the power, it's the thing, it's the action of Jesus that God uses as the means to bring us from death to life spiritually, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So There's regeneration. That's, that's the core of it there. We're dead. He made us alive. But how does he do this? By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him a reference clearly to the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has been raised, we've been raised, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, so there's this union, salvation is not merely this distant transaction where God just sort of waves his magic wand and from the heavens taps you on your shoulder. It is the joining of, of a dead sinner uniting that person to Christ so that what Christ experiences in his death and his resurrection, we experience. So as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, when Jesus died and bore the penalty for sin, it's as if we were there and Jesus died for us and with us in our place. Now the same logic applies to the rising of Christ. When he rises, we, because we've been joined to him, we've been united to him in salvation, we rise, and that's the logic of Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. Listen, this is a description uh, of the Christian. For you have died, and your life, is hidden with Christ in God. Come on now. Uh, Those last five words of verse 3, we we should dwell on that. This is a description of the Christian. You are hidden with... I can't do enough hand motions to describe all of the prepositions in this verse. You're hidden with, with Christ in God. Come on now. Okay, last one, Romans 6, before we move on, and this is, we're talking about regeneration, like how, 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 what's the link between the resurrection of Jesus and the making alive of dead saints into Christ, of the salvation of God's people? Do you not know, Romans 6, and we're going to see a couple of baptisms, where this is going to be enacted for us as a display of the gospel through baptism. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In other words, he goes down into the water, and water is a sign of death. It's a sign of God's wrath. It's a sign of God's judgment in the Old Testament, like the flood. Jesus goes down into the water. He bears all of the wrath of God. He bears the flood of God's wrath on the cross. That's that's what this water is picturing. And he extinguishes it. He drinks He drinks God's wrath dry, he dries the sea of God's judgment for us, and he rises again. So we were buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if you have been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. Do you follow? Come on, this is not rock and science. Come on. Come on. Do you see the logic here? Paul is saying that to be a Christian means that with Jesus, you were regenerated, you were made alive. Everything that Jesus accomplished in his death is yours. And everything that he accomplished in his resurrection is yours because you have been made alive and you've been grafted. You've been put in him. You're united with him. You're his and he's yours. And that, that, that is because... All of these benefits come to us not merely because of the death of Christ, as important as that is, but it's only half the gospel, but primarily also because of the resurrection of Jesus. So here's the great news. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I can do that because these are my notes, and I can go wherever I want. Friends, friends, listen. Listen. The good news of the gospel is not merely that your sins are forgiven, but that you've been made alive and been given the righteousness of Christ and you are with him now forever. So so then, so then with regeneration, this leads us to our second point comes the gift of saving faith that then we exercise and we place in Jesus. So then if the resurrection is our basis for our regeneration, then the resurrection is the basis for our justification. That's the second point, justification. What do we mean by justification? I I just got ahead of myself here, but let me repeat myself, okay? Let me repeat myself. Justification is the result of your regeneration. It's what happens when you are born again. It's what happens when God has made you alive in him and joined you to Christ. And here's the good news of justification. Justification is not just that your sins are forgiven, as much as we need that, because we are guilty sinners, every one of us, every one of us. We tend to judge ourselves by people around us, horizontally, how we compare to other people, but that's not how the Bible judges us. That's not how God judges us. We will stand before him someday, and his holiness is our standard, and all of us have failed. Every one of us, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, have fallen short of the glory of God, and consequently deserve to be separated from God forever. So we need our sins forgiven. We need the wrath to be absorbed. We need it to be taken care of. We need the penalty to be paid. But that just brings us back to a neutral state of not guiltiness. We actually need more than that to dwell in the presence of God because God can't abide with sin and he can't just abide with neutrality. We have to be righteous in order to be reconciled to God. And so, the good news of justification is not just that your sins are forgiven, that our sin was placed on Christ, imputed is the word, and taken away, but that here, and this is the double exchange, the great exchange of the gospel. Not just that our sin goes to Him and He takes it away and takes its punishment, but that His righteousness becomes ours. It's imputed to us. And now we're not just forgiven. And here's the glorious, scandalous news of the gospel. We're not just forgiven. We are righteous because of what Christ has done. How then, I want to answer this question, how then does the resurrection, what's the logic? What does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with my justification? Well, the scriptures, I think, answer that for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 25. Speaking of Jesus, who was, Paul says, delivered up for our trespasses, to bear our wrath, and raised for our justification. So Paul is giving us a link between Jesus' resurrection and our justification. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And being found in human form, speaking of Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, so he died on the cross, he bore our sins. As a result, therefore God has highly exalted him, Raised him from the dead and ascended him to his throne. He has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So think of it this way. Think of it as if in the resurrection, Jesus isn't merely just dying for our sins, but it's as if the Father is saying to the Son, I approve of your sacrifice. It's sufficient to atone for all of the sins of all of the people that would ever trust in you. But I not only approve of your sacrifice, I vindicate your holiness and the fact that you didn't die for your sin, but you died for their sin. And because of your holiness, your righteousness, I am vindicating that by raising you up from the dead. And now, here's the stunning, glorious good news of the gospel. God doesn't just validate Christ's righteousness. He actually gives it to the people that are in Christ. Because remember, that's what it means to be regenerated. Not to be distant from God and to receive a transaction of salvation, but to be united with Christ. And so now the implication is clear. If the Father has vindicated the Son and given Him the resurrection, if He rises and He's approved, then everybody that's in Him is approved and has what He has, which is His righteousness. (laughs) Come on now. 2 Corinthians 5:21. You need to know this verse. You got to write this down. You got to you have to you this verse should be part of your repertoire. 2 Corinthians 5:21. For our sake, meaning sinners who could do nothing for themselves, he, meaning the Father, made him, meaning the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, so the first part of the sentence says that Jesus actually became sin for us. God punished it on the cross. So, come on. I want you to think deeply about the cross. The Father is pouring out the wrath that should have been ours on the Son on the cross. So, friends, listen now. We got lots of enemies in this world, we got lots of things we got to deal with. We got a wicked culture. We got bad governments. We got tyrants. We got diseases. We have spiritual forces of wickedness. We have a devil who prowls about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. But most primarily, our number one problem is the holiness and wrath of God and who, Psalm 130, if you should count our iniquities, Lord, who could stand? Our biggest problem is the glory and righteousness of God that we've all offended, and Jesus answers that problem for us in the gospel. Friends, if you're not a believer and you're here today, your biggest problem is not a less than optimal life. It's not you being all that you can be. I, I want you to be all that you can be. I hope that maybe you, know, you can grow in grace and you can, be, you can live a happy life, but friends, what does that mean? It means nothing unless you are right with a holy God. That's the question for every soul. How will you be made right with God? And the only way you can be made right with God is that Jesus would take your place and take your sin, but even better than that, give you his righteousness. And how does he do this? Through justification. You get this new heart, you put your faith in Jesus, and this faith becomes the means by which you receive not only the forgiveness from your sins, but the righteousness of Christ himself. So here's the picture before we move on. It's this picture of two races. And by races, I'm not talking about white people or black people or brown people there are, on, there, there are different ethnicities, but there, there are only two races, according to the Bible. Those that are in Adam, our first father, and we are all like him by nature. We inherit his sin. We get what he has. It's this disease of sin, which leads us to death, spiritual death, or we are in Christ. Were in Christ and that's the logic of Paul in Romans chapter 5 so he says in verse 17 for if because of one man's trespass that's Adam death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life resurrected life through the one man Jesus Christ Those old school Crosspoint folks that have been here for a while, you remember my Mexican food analogy? There are only two types of Mexican food. And I can say this with somewhat, well, I'm just going to say authority. Because I grew up about a mile from a little place we like to call Mexico. And there are only two types of Mexican food. It's It's a tortilla with meat or chicken. What's an, what's an enchilada, you say? Oh, it's a, it's a tortilla with meat or chicken. What's a taco? A taco is a tortilla with meat or chicken. What's a burrito? A burrito is a tortilla with meat or chicken. What's a, what's a tostada? A tostada is a, is a tortilla with meat or chicken. What's a flauta? A flauta is a tortilla with meat or chicken. Friends, you only have two options. You can dress it up. You can put sauce. You can put this on it. You can put cheese. You can put sour cream. Friends, at the end of the day, you only got two choices. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And the glory of the gospel, friends is that when you are in Adam, you are dead. But when you are in Christ, you are not only forgiven, you are made alive and you receive the righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ. So because of the resurrection and the approval of the Father, if you're in Christ, when God looks at you, he sees you through the lens of the approval of the Son's victory over death, hell, and the grave. But it gets better which is, it gets, it gets I mean, it's just like, oh, it gets even better. And this is the third and final point of the importance of the resurrection is it's the basis for our glorification. It's the basis for our, what do I mean by glorification? Meaning that we will someday make it all the way home and we will not just have our, gosh, this is so good. We will not just have our sins forgiven and receive the righteousness of Christ during our earthly life but that, and here's what this theological term glorification means, it means that we are in this process after our salvation where we will eventually end up in eternity with Jesus, and here's the glorification part, we will be like him as he is in his resurrected glorified state. Come on. Listen to this, what do we mean by glorification? Where does this come from? Is Brad making this up? No, it's in the Bible. Romans eight thirty, and we know those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified. I'm amazed by this, he also glorified past tense. So even though this is a future reality, Paul is speaking of it in the past tense because it is so certain if you're a believer. <laughs> Philippians 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this, verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body? Oh, man. So what does this mean in regards to death, heaven, and the future? Well, this isn't a sermon on what happens when we die, but just a little rabbit trail to fill in some blanks for you. I think it's fine to say... When a person dies, I think it's a biblical thing, but I want us to understand the full scope of this, that when a person, when a Christian dies, it's fine for us to say that they've gone to heaven, but in a sense, if we are to die and we're in Christ, our, our earthly bodies go into the ground and they decay, and our spirits, our souls, immediately go to be with the Lord. Second Corinthians 5, I believe it says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if you're to die and you're in Christ, you immediately go to be with the Lord. But what these texts are pointing to, and we're going to get to this in a second, is a future final return of the resurrected ascended Christ who will come and upon his second coming will glorify us, will transform us, and something miraculous will happen. We, those who have died and are with Christ in his second return, coming with him with the army of heaven in that moment. Will be changed, and we will our spirits, which have been with Jesus in heaven, up until that point, will be transformed, and we will be resurrected. Our bodies will be glorified. We'll be reunited with our spirit, with our spirit, and we will be like Jesus forever. And that's heaven, heaven, heaven upon heaven. The new heavens and the new earth. How does the resurrection guarantee this? Well, Paul says this is what's going to happen. He says 1 Corinthians six, verse fourteen, and God raised the Lord. And will also raise us up by his power. And listen to Paul's logic. Remember, I said the cottering pin, the, the retaining pin of the Christian faith, if you take out the resurrection, you take it all out, you lose everything. I want you, I want you, as a Christian, to put all of the eggs of your hope in the basket of the truth of the resurrection. And that's the logic of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, verse 12: now if Christ is proclaimed, as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? That's what some of the Corinthians were saying. They were saying, you know, you die, and then that's it. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ, listen to his logic, has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. So in other words, just go home. Go home. This is vanity here. Let me skip down to verse 17. And if... Christ has not been raised. Your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are are of all people most to be pitied. So if you've boiled down the Christian message to just principles by which you can have a better life here in these 80 years, you've completely missed the gospel. And Paul actually heaps on a a little bit of scorn there and he says, You should be pitied if it's just about you having a better life now. But, verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, meaning those who have died. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Let me skip down to verse 49, 1 Corinthians 15. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust... We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In other words, friends, you're not going to be a cupid floating around in a cloud in heaven playing harps. You're going to be a resurrected body just like Jesus, and we will reign with him forever. So I tell you this, brothers, verse 50. How's this going to happen? This is the only detail the Bible gives us. So I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, there will be people alive when Jesus comes back. Not all of us are going to die before that. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. In other words, the return of Jesus. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. (laughs) So we're with him. The spirits of all those that are with Jesus in heaven. And us, if we die and we're in Christ, we will return with him in this victorious resurrection. And in the twinkling of an eye, we will be reunited with our resurrected bodies. And there will be no more cancer. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more COVID-19. There will be no more sin. There will only be joy upon joy forever. And we shall, as we've read, shall be like him. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And we can say that now because we know that is a certain future for all those that are in Christ. And friends, don't lose the point. All this is true because Jesus actually got up from the grave. So, what impact should this have on us? Three quick points. I, no, I know, oh, my God, oh, Brad, that's a lot. Just wrap it up. Okay, I'm about to wrap it up. Here we go. We need to see, we need to see this lived out in baptism. Just, just three. What impact? First, it should humble us and fuel our worship and evangelism. Each one of these three points goes with regeneration, justification, glorification. So, regenerate, why, the fact of the resurrection being the basis for our regeneration, it should humble us. I was made alive. I didn't, I didn't make my salvation happen. God did. He, I am born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if he saved me, he can save anybody. And also, it should fuel our worship, friends, It should fuel our worship. Man, we should remember this and come together and we should lean forward to sing and and, and enjoy in the God of our salvation too. Oh, this is so good. It should embolden us to go to our Father when we are weak. That's the beauty of justification. That He looks upon you, if you're a Christian, not because of your relative righteousness in that moment or how good you have had in your quiet times or even in your fighting of sin in that moment. And this is where God is so beautiful and his, his posture towards his people is so glorious and so fatherly. He may simultaneously chasten us for our disobedience, but he will always look upon us also through the lens of the imputed righteousness of Christ. So therefore, we can go to him when we are weak. It should embolden us to go to our Father. Hebrews 4:15 for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. What's the conclusion of the writer? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But isn't there this strange dichotomy in our minds when we don't feel right with the Lord? It's the time when we allow ourselves to be most distanced from the Lord. That's the time we need Him. We need Him. And we go to Him because we've been justified. Because we're going to Him, not based on my righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ, who was raised for our justification. And finally, it reminds us to live in the light of eternity, friends. This life is not all that there is. We are made for eternity. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't live like this life doesn't matter. It does. In fact, this is the beautiful paradox of this truth in Scripture is that because of our certain glorification, because of our security in Christ, because we will be with Him forever, the Scripture doesn't just say, well, then forget it. You know, com si, com sa, do whatever you want to do and live however you want. the the scripture actually takes it the other way because that's who you are, then live now in light of then. And live and work out your salvation with fear and trembling and discipline your body. 1 Corinthians 6, honor the Lord with your body because you've been bought with a price. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus secures all of this. And I want you to put all your hope, all of your eggs, in the glorious basket of the resurrection of Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, help us, uh, help us to live from this place. Any friends that are here this morning that came in unbelieving, make them alive. Lord, give them a new heart. Regenerate them by your spirit. Give them eyes to see so that they trust, not in some ethic, not in some moral teaching, not in their ability to make themselves better, but they trust in the crucified and risen King who was raised to save sinners like us. And as we see the baptism now of these two, Lord, encourage us, deepen our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.